Good day and welcome to the Sprint T-Mobile deal update call. Today's conference is being recorded, and at this time I'd like to turn the conference over to Mr. Ethan Lacey. Please go ahead, sir. Yeah, hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Ethan, and I do TNT Specialty Sales in New Street. I want to thank everyone for joining us today for our T-Mobile Sprint Regulatory Update call. From New Street, on the call today, we have Blair Levin, uh, Jonathan Chaplin, and Spencer Kern. As always, the more interactive, the better. Uh, there will be no call slides for this call, but uh, we'd love to have you uh, join in the Q&A, and feel free to send any questions uh, you might have for the call to me as well at ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com. Blair, if you don't know him, is our TNT regulatory analyst and the best there is, former FCC chief of staff and author of the National Broadband Plan, and that's probably a great place to start the call. As I hand it over to Blair, I guess, Blair, my first question would uh, where are we in this project? <laughs> Thank you very much, Ethan. We're 30 minutes away from, uh, I guess, the Mueller report, but uh, let's, let's all ignore that and go to some other things on the map. We're in the final inning. Um, I think we will have clarity as to what's going to happen to this deal other than the potential of state litigation, uh, which I identified as a tail risk, and I know we wrote recently, and what I mean by that is let's focus our minds on what's happening at the federal government with an understanding that there is a risk of an independent state litigation. But just for clarity, let's talk about micro, macro, and Macon, uh, kind of the three M's. The macro is the traditional antitrust analysis. And, and I want to focus on what we, what we actually know and what we think we know. What we actually know is that the staff has significant concerns at the traditional antitrust level. They are concerned about the efficiency arguments the companies have put forward. They're concerned about the impact on prices. They're concerned about the impact in the first couple of years before kind of 5G kicks in and things like that. We also, there is a macro here. Uh, usually antitrust doesn't have a macro, but sometimes it does. And the macro here is the 5G and kind of the, the politics. In the same way that we we feel confident that um, uh, the macro is working against the deal. The, ma- the, the, the micro is working against the deal. The macro is working for the deal. I'm not saying that the DOJ staff um, cares about the we must be China in 5G argument, but there's no question that at a political level, this deal is a beneficiary of things that you might not have thought about a year ago in terms of them putting this deal forth. But the big, the, the, the big factor really is making Dalrahim himself because he is the single most important decision maker. We do know, know a few things about him. First of all, you know, as a Republican, I think it's fair to say we start off by he has to be convinced to block a deal as opposed to has to be convinced to approve a deal. There is a slight difference between Democrats and Republicans in that way. Kind of the starting burden of proof uh, is, is a little bit different. He has said things that could be used to justify a view that uh, he's opposed to the deal or that he's for the deal. So he certainly hasn't said anything that that I would regard as definitive. We also know that he hates um, behavioral conditions and prefers structural conditions. And very importantly, we know there's been no serious conversations with either of the parties about conditions. So that's what we know with a very high level of certainty. Here's what we think we know. We think we know the staff is opposed. Not just that they have concern, but that they're opposed. And this comes out of the Wall Street Journal article. That is controversial. Um, we think the Wall Street Journal is, is probably right. We talked about that in the note we wrote earlier this week as to why we think that. But it's not 100%. There are scenarios in which um, you could argue that you know the sourcing was not 
was not good or that there were other people with motives or whatever. So I want to put that in the category of think, not uh, not certainty. Secondly, we think we know the states are likely to sue. Um, and, and that's a very important thing. Uh, and that affects Delrahim's thinking as well. But as we sit here today, where I would say we are is we're approximately um, – I mean, it could happen as early as later this week, which is to say tomorrow, but it's more likely that there will be another series, a couple series of meetings with some kind of definitive either um, clear yes, clear no, or you have to do certain uh, conditions with actually a lack of clarity as to whether those conditions would be acceptable. And this is at the federal level sometime in the next, I would guess, four weeks. I would guess by mid-May uh, we have pretty good clarity about this. And let, let me just stop there, and then we'll get into it in detail with the questions. Back to you, Ethan. That's great. Thank you. And I, I guess, Jonathan, maybe just sort of pivoting to you, obviously your team has done quite a lot of work around, you know, potential capacity issues, spectrum, and, you know, how the world, you know, could look sort of pro forma for Sprint T-Mobile, as well as, you know, a, a scenario where uh, the deal falls apart. I guess my simple question would be, what happens if the deal breaks? How are you thinking about sort of uh, the pieces uh, on the uh, the test board at present? So in terms of stock reactions, to run through them quickly, and this is not that interesting because we can see it every day in the market as the deal odds shift. But Timus is obviously down a little bit. Sprint is down a lot. Verizon, AT&T are down. Cable is up. Towers are up. Anything with Spectrum is up. So Dish is up. And the guys with exposure to the C-band is up. I would have a slightly different view to the market on AT&T and Verizon. I think the market views the deal going through is good for AT&T and Verizon and the deal being blocked is bad for AT&T and Verizon. We have exactly the opposite view. I think the deal being blocked is great for AT&T and Verizon. They will have a, a less aggressive T-Mobile and a deadly withering sprint to contend with in the scenario where the deal's blocked. And I think they'd be facing a much tougher competitive environment against T-Mobile if the deal if the deal was approved. So that's our quick run through of where the where the stocks would move, Ethan. On AT&T and Verizon, if the deal gets blocked, they're in a better position than they would be if the deal was approved. But not it doesn't improve their position nearly enough for us to be enthusiastic about either of the equities in those companies. Our inclination is more if the deal is approved, it would make us more vociferously negative. And uh, if the if the deal is blocked, it's not quite as bad as it it could have been. But our view on the prospects for those two companies is still uh, is still pretty bleak. And, and maybe just to kind of continue with that thread, Jonathan, you mentioned the withering sprint. Uh, what happens to sprint if uh, a deal doesn't go through? I guess they've had we rewind the clock here. There was talks with cable and potentially dish before the T-Mobile deal. Do those deals come back uh, for Sprint? How do you think about um, their positioning? So there's two plausible outcomes for Sprint if the deal is blocked. One is that SoftBank buys in the minorities, and the other is that Sprint files for Chapter 11. I think there are a host of other things that could happen but I think they're pretty unlikely to happen before a restructuring at Sprint. So a deal with cable, a deal with Dish, a deal with anyone else, I think is pretty implausible ahead of a restructuring. I think Sprint would need 
at least $10 billion in new capital to turn the business around, and quite possibly more than that, and it would be a multi-year process. I can't see why anybody would put that kind of capital in ahead of a restructuring. The prospect of SoftBank buying in the minorities, I think is very, very difficult for anybody to judge on the outside. I meet with clients uh, who claim to have intimate knowledge of the inner workings of Massa's brain, um, who, who tell me definitively that Massa would walk away from the asset and let it file at this point, um, and others with the same insight into the inner workings of his brain tell me definitively that he'd never do that. It would be a loss of face. He'd take the company private. He really believes in the spectrum value. It's impossible for me to judge how likely that is from the outside. The way I look at it is it, it's the the preconditions for investing in Sprint were miles better um, at any point in the last six years uh, that, that SoftBank has had the stake and they've been unwilling to put capital in for the last six years. I, I can't see why they would put more capital into the business now, you know, A, to take it private and then to, and, and then to fix it if they've been unwilling to invest in the last six years. And so my base case would be a restructuring. Yeah, that that's helpful. And, and, and I guess maybe this is controversial, but like, how do you think about the capacity issues that T-Mobile has absent Sprint? And, you know, in a no deal scenario, how do they resolve, you know, those capacity issues? Is it a dish or a bus? Yeah, so there's two ways to fix the capacity problems. It's add density or find more spectrum. Our base case is that they add density. Um, we've got them adding, increasing their cell sites by 70% over the next five years so that they can keep growing at the pace that they've been growing for the last few years. And what that means is network expense rises at the same rate that revenue rises, gross margins are flat, they get a little bit of margin lift on EBITDA because they get a little bit of leverage against SG&A, and they can keep leverage at a fairly high level, buy back a lot of stock. The equity on that basis to us is compelling. We think it's worth $81 a share. Anything they do that isn't that ought to be better. So that should be the benchmark that they measure all their investment decisions against. Uh, and anything they do that, that as, as an alternative should have a higher NPV than that. And so I think of, of all of the scenarios facing them, $81 in equity value would be the, the bottom end of the range. There may be avenues for them to create more value by acquiring Spectrum. Spectrum choices are relatively limited. So DISH is, is obviously the most compelling block of Spectrum that's sitting unused at the moment that they could deploy immediately. Getting a deal done with DISH is hard. DISH and T-Mobile, um, I think, had serious talks a couple of years ago and uh, decided not to do a deal. And I think the things that made a deal difficult back then would make a deal difficult now, but by no means impossible. I think a, an acquisition of all of DISH would be very, very difficult, but there are a myriad ways for these guys to partner for T-Mobile to buy a portion of DISH's spectrum, to lease a portion of DISH's spectrum, to network share. There, there are a lot of different potential structures that could create a lot of value for both of these companies and solve problems for them. Nevertheless, given the fact that it's DISH, getting one of these deals across the, the goal line is difficult, and so densification is my base case. If you think of just some of the other spectrum options out there, 
C-band is great. It doesn't increase T-Mobile spectrum relative to AT&T and Verizon, and so it doesn't really help them feed their share gains. And it's also probably at least four years away in terms of being deployable, so that doesn't really solve their problems. CBRS is really interesting, but difficult for T-Mobile to deploy on their own. Cable deal would be a great path to increasing capacity, particularly if they did it in conjunction with CBRS. I don't think Comcast or Charter are looking to do a deal with a wireless company, looking to acquire a wireless company in the, in the next sort of 18 to 24 months. Um, so I think if that, if that deal happens, it's still a ways off if it's cable acquiring T-Mobile. There's a prospect of a network sharing deal along the lines of what Sprint has done with Altice in Long Island uh, that's plausible, but again, I think it's probably probably still a ways off. What would be really interesting would be if Deutsche Telekom decided that they couldn't get Sprint, that they wanted to acquire Charter. I think the deal happening the other way around doesn't have the same kind of time constraints, but that would obviously be a, a, a huge deal for Deutsche Telekom, and so it's, you know, I'd, I'd give that reasonably low, it'd be incredibly interesting, and I think it would make a ton of sense, but I'd give it a, a, a low probability at this stage, and those are the paths ahead I see for, for Timus. That's awesome. Thank you. Maybe, Blair, I've got a, quite a few questions here from the field just around condition, so if maybe just use that as an opportunity to pivot back to uh, the deal itself. Some of these are about spectrum divester or about wholesale, but I guess I'm just going to sort of aggregate and say, are there potential conditions in your view that the companies could still agree to that would satisfy regulators? We've written a few pieces on this, and I think it's complicated. I'm going to take three different sets. First, the spectrum one, uh, there has been a spectrum divestiture condition proposed by a conservative think tank known as Technology. Technology traditionally has taking positions that both AT&T and Verizon uh, tend to favor. It's a run, it's a one-person shop, doesn't disclose funding, run by a former wireless bureau chief under Kevin Martin. And they, they had a proposal, you can see it on the web, of uh, spectrum divestiture. I think the companies did a very good job of saying why that doesn't work. Uh, and, you know, the, the two big reasons are, number one, if you're simply, as this proposal would, voluntarily forcing the company to give Spectrum back to the government, which the government then uh, auctions in AT&T and Verizon win the Spectrum, that doesn't address the 4 to 3 problem. Um, and, and secondly, it actually takes away from the efficiency gains and things like that. So I don't think Spectrum is in play. Having said that, it continues to come up in, in pretty much every conversation. So I don't dismiss it entirely. I just think that if you look at it from the DOJ point of view, What's the problem you're why, – why do you need any conditions? And I think that the problem that the DOJ is struggling with is the four-to-three problem. I think it's the, – the companies have not won on there. It's really two going to three. I don't think they've won on it. It's really eight going to seven. Um, I think the government looks at it, again, at that micro level of four going to three, uh, and, and Spectrum doesn't solve that problem. You could say, well, if you if you had cable or dish by it, uh, then that would solve the problem, but not necessarily because you still got to build up a network and you still got to get customers, etc. So I don't think Spectrum's an answer. A second set of things are what we might think of as the prepaid or the MVNO issue, which is 
Those are smaller things. I think you could get conditions if you're worried about the impact on the prepaid market or the MVNO market. There are solutions I think would be acceptable to the company. The third bucket are the big dramatic things, which there are a variety of ways of structuring it. But the basic point is if you allow the companies to put the network assets together, and by that I mean both the spectrum and the actual kind of physical assets, and to share those assets, but to retain independent retail operations of Sprint and T-Mobile, and then possibly even include forcing that uh, joint venture or wholesale entity to sell to others on the grounds that we're diminishing the number of facilities-based providers, but we're gaining capacity, but we want to make sure that it's really pro-competition, so we invite even more people in. You know, Then the question is, can you find uh, in that Venn diagram something that the companies, by which I really mean T-Mobile, because I think Sprint would probably agree to anything, by which the companies would agree and the government would agree solves a problem that doesn't get into, uh, even though it looks structural, a whole bunch of government oversight. And that's tricky. But I, I want to emphasize there's been no discussion of conditions in a serious way on this deal so far, which is really interesting. Usually by this time, either the opponents are offering conditions because they know they're going to lose, or the company is offering conditions because they think there's a risk of them losing. You could argue that the company has offered a couple of conditions, and I think to be fair to them, they have said, we'll freeze prices for three years and we'll commit to rural build-outs. Those are clearly political, not antitrust things. Um, those are designed to get support from states and maybe the FCC, but they are not, in my opinion, designed to get DOJ uh, sign-off, and that's the most critical factor. Got it. And, and maybe, Blair, can we just – I want to rewind to sort of where we started regarding some of the news in the last couple of days here. But John Legere and Corre, uh, Marcelo Corre, both claimed that the, the premise of that Wall Street article that came out was wrong. I mean, I was curious what you think actually was indicated by the staff as it relates to that. Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, and 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 obviously I don't know. So I'm, you know, we're all playing Sherlock Holmes here, trying to put together data points, and none of us have that uh, brilliance or the, you know, like the ability to essentially have already solved the puzzle before, uh, as we state the evidence. So yeah, look, the journal. W w one thing everyone should understand about the article was that. The first paragraph, when Jared talks about the first paragraph, that was a paragraph where there was an outcome stated by staff, that it is unlikely that the deal will be approved as currently structured. Everything else in that article, I think, has been well known. We certainly have been saying there are significant issues, significant staff resistance. The companies haven't been saying that, but I don't think they object to anything else in that article. I think what they object to is that kind of definitive unlikely. But, you know, you can say unlikely. For some people, unlikely means 2%. Other people, unlikely means 25%. So you, you could have a disagreement about how the staff stated it that was in summarized in the word unlikely. And that may be, that, that may be where the disagreement really lies. You could have a situation where the sourcing was problematic. Now, I, you know, and I know the reporters respect the reporters a lot. And I respect the journal, uh, news organization. I don't believe they would write a, they would allow a story to be written that clearly the market as it did unless they were very certain of their sourcing. And that is to say direct people. Uh, there has been some speculation that, for example, the source of that was the states. 
don't think that's right because I don't think the journal would accept that. It could be that there's a rogue staff member, but that's very unusual for the DOJ. The, the, the staff there, they, they don't leak. But, you know, Washington these days, there's lots of uh, – you, you, you have to consider lots of different possibilities. So I think the story – if the word unlikely was not used by a staff member, there was probably some indication that is the staff view. But, again, remember, Macon can overturn the staff. I think he's less likely. I mean, I think it's below 50% that he would, but it is a certainly a material element to any kind of analysis that he may just see the world differently than the staff. Got it right. And then just, you know, to help investors think about framings, the timeline, what's the next piece of information that we get in relation to the deal decision? Is it Are we going to get a headline? Is there a government action? Is there a filing that you're watching out for? Yeah. So the key filings I'm looking out for would be at the FCC related to conditions. There will be, I understand there was a meeting either yesterday or maybe today with some of the commissioners. Um, You know, we know from a tweet that Marcelo is in D.C. He doesn't usually come alone. uh, And he said this is an important week, but there'll, there'll be some meetings at the FCC. I don't think those meetings are critical, at least as far as I understand them. The, 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 in, in terms of indicators, any discussion of conditions would be an important indicator from my perspective, either coming from the opposition or coming from the companies themselves. Otherwise, the story that we saw in the journal is the kind of story I actually expected to see in a couple of weeks. And one thing that you know makes me nervous about relying on it too much is it seems a little bit early. Remember that, you know, for example, with the Comcast Time Warner cable deal, there was uh, a leak about problems. I think Bloomberg had it about a week before, and then a week later, there was uh, it was pretty much done. So we might get that kind of a thing. I, I would be surprised if there was what's called, but in antitrust parlance, the last rights meeting, where the company meets with the actual decision maker, which, which is to say Macon, uh, and he basically says you either have to do X, and X is really hard for you to do, or we're going to say no, which basically means his saying no. As what happened with the AT&T deal, where, remember, he said, I will say yes, but only on condition that you either sell DirecTV or you sell Turner, which was, you know, obviously a, a no. So I kind of expected that meeting, if it was going to be that meeting, to occur more like first or second week of May. It seems a little early. But the DOJ does not require ex parte, so we'll find that that out by leaks. But look, in this environment, you you know, you could have a presidential tweet that could tell us something. You could have a sudden shift in the company's body language that could tell us something. There are lots of different uh, data points. Thank you. I've got uh, a few more from the field here for both of you, but maybe Jonathan, if I can just come back to a couple of sort of your deal break, win or loser scenario. The question is, could there actually be a bear case for DISH as well as C-band spectrum uh, if the deal is blocked, only in that it means you'd have, you know, potentially 2.5 spectrum in play from Sprint, uh, assuming they were a forced seller and thus, you know, diluting the the theoretical pool of of, uh, spectrum in the market. I don't think so. I think the you have to go all the way to Chapter 7 before that spectrum 
hits the market. I think if Sprint it has any hopes of remaining a going concern, the 100% of the 2.5 is critical to them. That's they've, that's their source of capital. They've they've raised seven billion dollars against it. They've got another seven billion dollars um, in capacity that they believe they can raise against that. It's their only path to having a a prospect of a business that's really competitive over the long term. Anyone looking to put new capital into the business would be doing it in the context of this phenomenal spectrum portfolio and the prospect of creating something truly compelling because of the spectrum. You get rid of the spectrum and remember we just we need ten billion dollars to fix sprint. We need ten billion dollars at least to fix sprint with sixty megahertz of spectrum or hundred and twenty megahertz of spectrum and and I'm thinking specifically of the two point five the cost of fix, fixing Sprint is exactly the same, whether they've got all of their spectrum or, or half of the 2.5. Um, so it would be much more difficult to put that capital in, to imagine anyone putting that capital in if they sold half of the spectrum. I think the prospect of, of Sprint going through Chapter 11, bumbling along, not succeeding, and ultimately going through a Chapter 7 that's a plausible outcome, but it's probably years away, long after a C-band auction, long after DISH has figured out what they're going to do to monetize their spectrum. So, no, I don't think – sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but I don't think it's – I don't see a – in a deal-break scenario, I don't see a, a bad outcome for DISH or the C-band. That's great. Thank you. Uh, Derek, are there any questions in the queue? Uh, if not, I'll go back to uh... – the uh, questions that we received from the phone. Uh, no phone questions in the queue at this time, but for everyone on the phones, if you'd like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. And as a reminder, if you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, that is star 1, ask a question over the phones. And we'll pause for a moment. Yeah, maybe it's just why we'll wait, Blair. I'll come back to you with a few more that I've gotten. One. Uh, is just around the states. The question is basically, can you explain how the process with the states would actually work in suing to block in terms of logistics, timeline, and what you think the state's chances of are winning? Uh, obviously, assuming that T-Mobile would you know, probably appeal any state victory, you know, how drawn out could this process actually be? Yeah. The first, let's just acknowledge that it's, un, it's unusual, not quite unique. Um, there have been a couple of cases of this happening, but it's very, very unusual. But I think it's likely here. I think there's a consortium of states led by California and New York that would together file a, a lawsuit, I would guess in New York could be California, uh, under the Clayton Act, essentially saying that under federal law, this deal should not have been allowed. They will ask for an injunction to prevent the closing. And so that part of it will kind of move quickly, and then it can, you know, move to a, a, a trial similar, actually, in pacing to the AT&T case. So you can I, – I'm trying to think the decision um, to block the deal was made uh, in October. They had a trial that was uh, in the spring, and they – then got the Court of Appeals uh, argument in the following December and a decision in February. So, you know, a year and a half kind of process, uh, if, I, if I remember the dates right. As to their odds of winning, as we sit here today, if, if there was a simple yes, 
by the federal government and the states sue, I would say their odds of winning are about 30%. I, I think it's a pretty simple case. I'm not ruling on, I'm not saying anything about the merits of it. I'm just saying that it's unlike the AT&T vertical case. It's a simple horizontal case. You use traditional metrics. You look two years ahead. You do the HHI. You have the economists would argue about prices. It gets complicated when you have certain conditions, and it would be interesting to see how a judge might view the the, the price uh, the, the price freeze uh, requirement. Also, it very much depends on who the judge is. But, you know, there are certain scenarios that, which could change it. Uh, for example, let's say the staff said no, and that was publicly known, and Macon said no, and that was publicly known, and then Bill Barr overturned them both. I think the odds of the states winning then go up because it looks like the DOJ isn't relying on traditional kind of staff expertise but rather a kind of one person making what would probably be seen by uh, many courts as a political uh, judgment. I, I think that's kind of very unlikely to happen, but I'm just saying there are a number of things that can affect uh, the odds um, in various ways. So, but, but I start at that 30%, knowing that we'll adjust very heavily, you know, depending on the judge. I, I might add, by the way, that I have heard different things about Barr being recused. I have heard from some folks that he is. I've heard from other folks that um, he has uh, sold his stock uh, in the sector and therefore uh, is free to do it. But it may be that he's recused, so that scenario that I just mentioned is actually off the table. It was always unlikely. That's great. Thank you. And just another one kind of coming back to the uh, the original stories themselves, the first Wall Street Journal story indicated the staff, in quotes, questioned the company's efficiency. And Reuters wrote last night a similar story. If the issue is that the DOJ hasn't been persuaded that the efficiencies are a lot, you know, large enough or verifiable, merger-specific, et cetera, the question is, how is that fixable with any uh, condition? And then, two, when would the DOJ say that they don't need any more evidence, given that it's been over a year? You know, as to that question of efficiencies, uh, I, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. My instinct is the same as the person who asked the question, which is to say, if you can't demonstrate the efficiencies, the whole thing kind of falls apart. The reason why I can't be as definitive is because there has been so little discussion of conditions and because so much of the documentation on efficiencies is subject to redaction. So. It's really hard to know what, what the arguments are and kind of what the details are. I, by the way, I might add, even if it wasn't redacted, I'm not sure I have the, <laughs> the background and training to be able to answer that question either. So, I mean, this is very much in the weeds of, of economic modeling. But I think it is a very good point that that is just kind of a foundation stone on which antitrust operates. And if you, if you cannot demonstrate those kinds of efficiencies – and you do have a harm to competition, uh, it's usually kind of game over. Um, there was another question you asked. Right, which was, if that's where we are, when does the DOJ just say they oh. don't need any more evidence? Yeah, I, I, I think very soon. My understanding is that um, some, some of the people who challenged uh, the Wall Street Journal article were saying that, in fact, it was a kind of more typical meeting in which the message was, we still haven't convinced us on X, but here's your homework assignment, and they'll be coming back in. But 
we we are, I feel confident, in the final inning, at least as far as, as I de- define it, which is to say, in, unless there is some big new condition um, suggested, uh, and then we get a debate about that, fundamentally, we are 90, we're in the 99%, well, 95% in terms of information collection. Very little left to be done. Got it. Okay. And then uh, kind of coming towards the end here, but Blair, in your note yesterday, you focused on network sharing or spectrum sharing as conditions of the deal, but you didn't really mention anything about selling the prepay business, which is, you know, some of the most significant HHI issues. Why not? And why couldn't selling prepaid be a decent remedy to get a deal approved? Thank you for the question. The way we wrote that note yesterday was to focus on on three different scenarios. I I put divesting prepaid brands into the category, first category, which is basically yes, with conditions that are not material to uh, investors. If it turns out, and this is another way of reading the, the Wall Street Journal story, which is more favorable to the companies, which is they say, the deal is unlikely because it's currently structured. But what they mean by that is we have a small problem with the prepaid market. You have to solve that. My reading of the Wall Street Journal article uh, for various reasons was we have the we have the big problem, which is we see four going to three, and we and, and we that and you don't have the efficiencies, and there's still price increases, yada yada yada. But if the only problem really is the prepaid market or the MVNO market, there are solutions to that that I uh, that and, and Jonathan should weigh in here that I don't think cause Wall Street to, you know, think really differently about it. They would simply regard that as a yes, and everything that would happen with a clean yes would pretty much happen uh, in terms of its impact on everybody else if you simply address those two issues. Yeah, just to chime in there quickly, and then actually, Blair, I've got a question for you, but to to chime in on the, the issue of conditions, if divesting boost was a required condition, um, I think that would remove very, very little value from the deal. The, the question would be, who would you divest boost to? I was asked by clients in marketing meetings yesterday whether it would make sense to divest it to Verizon. I can't imagine Verizon wanting to buy boost. Uh, I can't even imagine them taking it for free. If that was the condition that got the deal through, um, I think that would be an awesome outcome for T-Mobile. Spinning Boost off as an MVNO is uh, is another idea that we've had posited to us. Again, I think that removes negligible value from the deal. If that was all that was required to get it done, um, I think that would be a great outcome. The c- condition that Blair mentioned earlier of what about pushing out all of Sprint as an MVNO, as a condition to doing a deal. That, on its face, sounds like a, a big condition that would be really scary, but I think it, it, it could actually be a, a better outcome than the status quo for T-Mobile. It would all depend on how the condition is structured, but I think it, it's actually something that's, that's really worth thinking through from an investor perspective. So the, the, the first question I, I, I've gotten over the course of the last few days around this condition specifically is, well, would the DOJ even con, uh, consider it? They don't like MVNOs. They don't think of MVNOs as, as real competitors. It's all over sort of the, the FCC's comments on competition analysis historically. And I think historically, 
That's absolutely accurate. MVNOs haven't been counted in competitive analysis, but it doesn't have to be the case. That's a function of how MVNOs have been structured historically. Obviously, we've seen dozens of examples in Europe where MVNOs have been structured differently and have had a very profound impact on competition and pricing in the market. And so it's, it's absolutely conceivable that we could structure an MVNO that the DOJ would accept as curing the competitive concerns of consolidation. If, if you could put the infrastructure of these two companies together and the spectrum of these two companies together, it's difficult for me to imagine that you wouldn't end up with uh, lower network costs than if you kept the two companies independently. If the two companies, if Sprint and T-Mobile had lower network costs, I think that's unequivocally a good outcome for the industry and for consumers. In a four-carrier market, it's very likely that those lower network costs would ultimately be passed on to consumers in, in the form of lower pricing. So there, there absolutely has to be a way to structure, whether you call it a network sharing or uh, you allow the deal with an MVNO that gets pricing that benefits from lower network costs, there's a path for a deal that I think the DOJ uh, would have to consider. The question then is whether T-Mobile and Sprint would go for it. Um, I think their initial reaction to that, it would be no way, never. We've seen how this plays out in Germany and it sucks. But I, I think the real answer isn't no way, never. I think there are, there's a scenario, there's a structure here um, that could be better for T-Mobile than the status quo as well. I think we've got to go back to what the real driver of this merger is. It's, I think there are tremendous cost synergies from smashing two networks together, but that's not what the merger is all about. The merger is all about getting T-Mobile the capacity they need to continue growing at the pace they have to remain disruptive in the market. And so consolidating all of the spectrum on one network is the primary driver of the deal. If you could get all of Sprint's customers in that instant scale, that's fantastic, but it's not the most important rationale behind the deal in my view. Great, thank you. Go ahead, I'm sorry, but Without weighing in on the merits or demerits of the deal and just focusing on the question of um, divestitures of the prepaid brand, I, I would say I don't think it matters too much who Boost was sold to or whether it was spun out from its own entity. I would distinguish that from the spectrum. I mean, if you if you were to divest spectrum to Verizon and AT&T, obviously that doesn't matter. I, I think if you're looking at the prepaid, as long as there is a prepaid brand of scale that competes with the prepaid brand that would be with the new T-Mobile, then you have essentially what you have today. But I mean, there might be they they might the just part might feel that if it's by itself, it doesn't have the weight to be long term sustainable or something. So there might be something there, but I don't think it's a major issue. Got it. And uh, we're actually coming up on the hour here, but sorry, I'm going to put you a bit in the hot seat. I guess of all the potential scenarios. I'd be curious to know what you think is most likely and why do we end up with a no deal, a deal approval with minimal conditions, or a deal approval with significant conditions? Yeah. So I'm going to um, say that the I think the most critical question for investors is, you know, what are the odds of the deal closing? 
I am a I'm, I'm well below 50%. And but the but at the federal level, I'm still kind of at that probably at about 45%. The reason I then go down is because of the what I think of as the tail risk of the states both suing and then winning in the litigation. But, you know, so much revolves around the question of what Macon Delrahim himself thinks, and I don't have a high level of confidence that either I or anyone, uh, other than people very close to him, has good insight into what he's thinking. He's not a law professor who's written 15 law review articles you could read about this. He's not a lawyer who uh, practiced antitrust law, and you could kind of look to cases or arguments he made, um, you know, to, to see where this guy is grounded. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. And that's probably a really good place, I think, to leave the call. I just wanted to thank everyone for joining us today and sending in your questions. And obviously, a special thanks to Jonathan and Blair and the rest of the research team. Uh, obviously, and, and maybe perhaps most importantly, they are always available to answer any of your questions as we move into the home stretch of the deal. And we look forward to the continued dialogue as the final chapter plays out. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you.